Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Hi, everyone. I'm grateful for this opportunity to speak with you today, but so, so sorry not to be there with you in person. Lent is a time for turning inward, but after the lonely year we have just endured, it feels especially disappointing not to be able to gather with like-minded souls in praise and shared reflection. Today I've taken as my text the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 22 through 27. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, nor about your body, what you shall put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a cubit to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, Why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. The point here is that worry accomplishes nothing. This is an especially necessary point in this age of anxiety. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a cubit to his span of life? The answer, of course, is none of us. Jesus is telling us to trust God to watch over us. He is telling us to be like the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. For us, as for them... It is enough to concern ourselves with the troubles of the day. No need to borrow tomorrow's worries. It's hard to think of any better advice for surviving the claustrophobia of quarantine and the terrors of a pandemic. These are the words we need to hear to be able to sleep at night, to be able to get up in the morning and manage the myriad tasks of making our way through yet another complicated day in the complicated 21st century. Any words that get us through these hard, dark days are a gift. But are these divine words of reassurance good advice for the age of climate change? I want to think about that question for a few minutes today. Does it make sense with species diversity and catastrophic decline for us to say, well, God's eye is on the raven, so this is not my problem. 
Does it make sense with the lilies of the field too often mowed down for another subdivision for us to tell ourselves, this is not my problem. This is God's problem. Before I try to untangle those questions, I want to tell you a story. In this story, it is 1998, and my husband and I have just logged 300 hallucinogenic miles in a minivan with a six-year-old, a two-year-old, and a brand-new baby. We have arrived in southwest Georgia, where my husband's parents live, for a big, raucous, small-town family reunion. I have taken the baby into a quiet bedroom to feed him and put him down for a nap, where I have promptly fallen asleep myself. When I wake up, the baby is still sleeping, but the rest of the family has gone to a friend's house outside town. Wandering through the quiet house, I noticed my mother-in-law's sewing shears on the kitchen table. I think of my youngest sister-in-law's new bangs, the way they make her look so young and cute. It's been so long since the last time I had a decent night's sleep that I don't even remember being young, much less cute. Maybe bangs would help. I take the scissors into the bathroom <clears throat> and try through the veil of my own hair to cut a straight line above my eyebrows. I try again, a little more on this side to match the other side, then a little more on the other side to match the mess I've just made on that side. Finally, I put the scissors down and look at myself. A drunk person has cut my hair. My mother-in-law is back when I return the scissors. Oh, that's perfect, she says. It's so smart for a young mother to have bangs. I don't understand. Because you spend all your time looking down, she says. Mothers of small children spend all their days looking down. I think about my gentle, beautiful, wise mother-in-law all the time. About the way she raised six children Three sons, like mine, plus three daughters, too, with such love and affirmation. That day, her words made me feel so much better. I had done something that made a kind of sense, after all. But looking back across more than two decades, I think about this story as much more than the tale of a new mother feeling tired and frustrated and foolish. I think of it as the explanation for why I paid too little attention to the natural world at a time when paying attention might have made a crucial difference. I think of it as the explanation for why too many of us aren't paying attention even now. We are spending our days looking down, and not just because we are raising small children. We are spending our days in exactly the ways that Jesus told us not to spend them, in toiling in labor, in storing up grain, in wondering what to wear. 
Consider the lilies, Jesus tells us. Consider the ravens. What if we considered the lilies and the ravens not just as examples of beings who exist in right relationship to God? What if we considered the lilies and the ravens as they are, as lilies and as ravens, as miracles of existence in a miraculously interconnected ecosystem? What if this part of Jesus's sermon isn't strictly an exhortation to trust God with our cares and our needs? What if it is also an exhortation to pay attention to what God has made, to the needs of God's creation? As a young mother, I spent my days looking down. But as a child, I did not need to be reminded to pay attention to the world God made. Though I know it can't literally be true, in my memories it seems as though I spent my entire childhood out of doors, studying the plants and the creatures of my home in Alabama. I'd like to revisit that time with you for a moment by reading just a bit from my first book, Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss. This one is called Creek Walk, Birmingham, 1969. The rocks are gray slate, massive slabs cantilevered over the water, as though the outstretched feathers of a great prehistoric bird had been caught in stone. My brother and I are barefoot, picking our way across the rock. We are always barefoot. The pads of our feet are thick, toughened by concrete and asphalt and gravel roads. And anyway, shoes would be useless on this slick rock. Worse than useless. We have not discussed a plan, and so we are making our way to the creek bed with no real intention. We are thinking of nothing. Or perhaps we are wondering if we will see another rattlesnake. Seeing any snake would be a cause for remark, but we have only once seen a rattlesnake. Mainly, we will turn over rocks on the bank of the creek, looking for worms and roly-polies. We aren't fishing. No one has ever taken us fishing. We are not the kind of children who would enjoy fishing. But we know we can summon the fish by tossing worms into the water, and we like to feel the fish mouthing the freckles on our legs. Sometimes there are salamanders on the bank. Sometimes there are tadpoles in the foamy water at the edges of the backwash. Sometimes there are crawdads under the rocks that jut into the water. Always there are dragonflies, blue and bottle green and scarlet red, hovering over the flashing water. 
Always there are jays scolding from the dark pines. We see them and we don't see them. We hear them and we never register their sound. The mud and the moving water smell vaguely of decay, but the smell does not disturb us or inspire the first curiosity. We have never even noted it. These are our sights and our sounds and our smells, as casual to us as the smell of our own breath in our cupped hands, as the sound of our own blood in our ears when we lie down on the biggest rock and hang our heads over the edge to dangle tickle tails in the water, tricking the fish into rising. We pick our way back toward the bank we will climb to start heading home. Clouds of minnows race from our feet. Clouds of grasshoppers rise from the timothy grass above the rocks. Clouds of gnats hover over the water, part for our small bodies, and coalesce again behind us. We climb out and sit together on the slanted rock to wait for our feet to dry in the hot sun. At home, it is almost time for supper, but we can't tell time. This was my life as a child, but by the time I finally looked up again, once my children were grown and my parents who needed so much help in their older years were gone, too many of the plants and the creatures I had loved as a child were gone too. Today, there are half as many songbirds sharing this gorgeous world with us as there were in 1961, the year I was born. Today, there are half as many insects, including the pollinators that are responsible for food production. We have lost a third of the world's arable land to erosion and soil degradation. We are losing the world's rainforests at a rate of 31,000 square miles every year. And animal populations have plummeted 70% since 1970. At our current rate of devastation, one million of the world's species, that's species, not individual animals, one million of the world's species, including all of its insects, will be extinct within the next 100 years. I could keep going, but I don't want to depress you. My point is that the earth is desperately sick with an illness that is far more destructive than the coronavirus pandemic, an illness that is causing the natural world to disappear before our very eyes. Before our very eyes. But is it? Have we actually opened our eyes? Have we truly 
Consider the lilies. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. These are Jesus's words to his disciples. And I struggle to reconcile that divine exhortation to trust God with what I know to be true about the natural world, that it requires our passionate commitment to its survival, our full participation in its healing. And then I remember the old story about the good Christian in the flood. A radio report urges everyone to evacuate immediately for the waters are rising. But the good Christian thinks to himself, I don't need to evacuate. God will save me. When the water has flooded the first floor of his house, the good Christian takes refuge on the second floor. A rescue crew in a boat calls out to him through the window. Come with us. The waters are rising. But the good Christian says, no, thank you. God will save me. As the water overtakes the second floor of his house, the good Christian climbs to the roof and a rescue helicopter fighting high winds throws down a ladder for him. The good Christian waves them off. God will save me, he shouts through the driving rain. In death, the good Christian says to God, Why weren't you there for me? I trusted in you. And you let me drown. And God says, Son, I sent you a radio warning, a boat, and a helicopter. What more did you want from me? As it is with the imaginary flood in this familiar story, so it is with the very real cataclysm that is climate change. Like the meteorologists, the radio announcers, and the rescue crews who come by boat and by helicopter, we must be God's hands here on earth. It's too late to have any hope of reversing climate change, but it might not be too late to mitigate its devastation. And while much of the healing will require the global political will to act, or at least a concerted effort by the market to make political will irrelevant, we are not powerless ourselves. We have a boat. Actually, we have many boats. We can use our own postage stamp of native soil to create an oasis of ecological sanity, and we can urge our neighbors to do the same. 40 million acres of land in this country consists of suburban lawns, so changing what we do in our backyards can make a dramatic impact on the environment. We can commit to being poison-free Herbicides poison not only the weeds, but also the insects and the reptiles and the birds that feed on them. Insecticides may make sitting on the patio more comfortable, 
but they do so at the cost of the food chain, poisoning the birds and the bats and the turtles, as well as the mosquitoes. Rat poison kills the mice, but before it kills the mice, it makes them slow enough for predators to catch. And in that way, it also poisons the owls and the hawks, the coyotes and the foxes, the bobcats and the rat snakes. It isn't hard to avoid this kind of tragedy. We can simply take a Hippocratic oath of our own and pledge to do no harm. Instead of planting exotic flowers and ornamental trees from foreign lands, we can plant native trees and shrubs to feed our native wildlife. The birds and insects and animals who live among us evolved to eat the plants that once lived plentifully among us too, to plant the homely flowers with weed in their names. The butterfly weed and frost weed and bind weed and jewel weed is to feed not only our own joy and flowers, but also our native bees and butterflies. To plant a hackberry tree is to feed the migrating songbirds for generations. To plant a red oak is to do the same for the blue jays and the flying squirrels and the raccoons and the opossums. We can vow to live in harmony with our wild neighbors, forsaking the carbon-spewing leaf blower to let autumn leaves lie where they, where they will protect overwintering insects and amphibians. We can patch the holes in our houses instead of setting traps for the animals that seek shelter there. We can let dead trees stand for the woodpeckers and for the tufted titmice and the bluebirds who nest in the holes woodpeckers make in trees. We can maintain a brush pile as a shelter for creatures seeking a safe place for pred from predators. Further from home, we can use our dollars to support farms that practice sustainable agriculture, companies that package products in alternatives to plastic, shops that promote a zero-waste way of living. We can eat local fruits and vegetables in season, and we can eat far less meat and cheese. We can subscribe to a solar farm or pay a little more on our power bills for green energy. We can set up automatic donations to nonprofits that are working to keep our air and our water clean to protect our forests and our estuaries and our oceans, to promote practices that protect biodiversity. Above all, we can avoid despair, for despair is the justification for inaction. We are not powerless. We have a boat. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. When Jesus offered this message of reassurance to his disciples, he wasn't talking about climate change. But for us, these words can offer more than comfort. 
that can also inspire engagement with the imperiled natural world. Consider the lilies and make a commitment to save the created world they need to survive, to save the planet we need to survive. Thank you. God bless. The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.